0: No Mickey show We clash momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating give the masses back as currency Greed from elites oligarchs stay fed deep state Faith fed everybody break bread racism homophobia sexism religion in this melted by We live in time to build a new system unionize labor rights Highlight the issue talk aheads left his best The saga continues, continues. the no Mickey show
1: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Kans. It is Wednesday, October 20th. And we, I don't know if you guys know this, um, we are looking into the abyss right now. Yes, yes. We are looking into the abyss. It's like being on the edge of a cliff, and you have to get to like a small little island, and it's that one little island that's, you know, there's like a storm coming and it's like pushing us off the cliff, and the only place is just like this this opening. In 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 the sky, and the only place that we're safe from the storm is this little island. But the way to get to the island is if you take a ladder off the cliff and you go to the beach at the base of the cliff, and you get on a little uh, you know, a, a little boat, <laughs> and that boat can only be driven by a man named Joe Manchin. That was my long <laughs> I'm turning into Rachel Maddow, guys. Sometimes she goes on these metaphors. I'm like, what? Where are you going with this? Where are you going with this? But seriously, where are we going with this? Joe Manchin has decided that what is going to move the infrastructure plan forward is if we eliminate climate change, anything that would protect us from climate change. We are about to go into the COP26 summit. World leaders from you know everywhere, world leaders, are meeting to discuss what the New York Times, the the left-leaning New York Times, has said is the last opportunity for us to responsibly deal with climate change. The last opportunity. That is because scientists around the world have said, this is the moment. We're already dealing with the effects of climate change, but it'll be irreversible uh, if we don't act now. What do you mean by irreversible? Well, I actually uh, saw former president, vice president, should have been president, uh, Al Gore speak at the summit that I went to last week in Scotland. It was the Countdown TED Countdown Summit. Um, I would say most of the speakers at that summit, as you guys know, I've I've reported from there. uh, Most of the speakers were extraordinary. You had uh, scientists and and mathematicians, all you know, giving their case about how we can fight off climate change, what we can do with governments, what we can do in what companies can do. And of course, individuals, although, you know, I believe that governments should really be cracking down on these big companies, but, you know, they're examining every single side of this. But Al Gore gave a speech at the end that was, it, it brought the audience to their feet. It was, it was pretty, um, Astounding, and I had never seen him speak like this before. And he's been speaking about climate change for twenty years, longer even when he was vice president. Um, but one part of his speech that stood out to me was the regenerative side of our 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 planet. How even though we have done an extraordinary amount of damage to our planet, and there's no way that we can get the lives back, or you know have uh, parts of glaciers you know, solidify or grow back. It's almost impossible to, uh, to, to plant as many trees have been deforested in the Amazon. You get the drift. But in terms of CO2, if we do whatever we can in this moment, I say we meaning the global community and leaders that we are leaning on, do whatever we can to regulate these companies, these global companies that are completely wrecking our environment, and adding more CO two. At the same time, if we do other things, governments do other things um, that he laid out in his plan. We are able to regenerate um, and make sure that the CO two levels are are safer. It's a very basic way of explaining it. But I I'm I'm really looking forward to sharing his uh, his speech when it comes out when it goes live in about a week and a half, so you can get a sense of that. But we're sitting here. I mean, the point of this is. It is the last moment. And if global leaders are being told, this is, you have to rise to the occasion. You have no legacy. You have no wealth. You have no grandchildren. There's no planet where we are all safe, including the richest and the most powerful. There's nothing but dealing with climate change right now. And if you can't rise to that occasion, quarterly profits mean nothing. If you can't do that, and what's the point of all this? What's the point of life? Seriously. And so from the US delegation, it is outrageous that the Biden administration is not doing everything in its power right now to strong arm Joe Manchin, who is the one person determining right now our climate change policy. Kirsten Cinema is the peacock of the group, and we're distracted by her theatrics and the fact that she's in Europe during these negotiations. You have every right to have a vacation, but not when you're in the middle of a crisis. And Joe Manchin thinks that jobs are not associated with climate change. He seems to think that climate change is not real. I mean, that is what he is expressing. He is expressing, the subtext here is, he doesn't believe climate change is real. That is not only not democratic, that is extremist that is extremist. I understand he's concerned about his coal jobs. Those coal jobs aren't going to exist because Wyoming, this is the news that came out this week, Wyoming is the state in the United States that has had the most severe effects of climate change. This man is delusional. This man is, is completely self-motivated. And our other leaders, Biden and and, and Schumer, are doing not enough. Clearly, publicly, not enough. Clearly, to make sure that we tackle climate change. So, I'm urging. I mean, what, what do we do with the show? My my suggestion is we just continue to pressure Joe Biden, the Biden administration. Uh, uh, you know, our our transportation secretary Pete Buttigieg. We urge our lawmakers to speak up against this. We urge people like Senator Schumer to do something. He controls committee appointments. It is his Senate. And, you know, it's it's pretty ridiculous when the Queen of England is more progressive on climate change than Democrat Joe Manchin, who comes from the state that has been hit by climate change the worst. We are staring into the abyss, and everything is riding on, at least in this moment, Joe Manchin. All right, we have a wonderful show today. We're going to be talking about the anti-Asian uh, hate that has been rooted in our immigration policy for over a hundred years. We're going to start off the show uh, discussing that. It's a really interesting topic that I, I, you know, we we've been watching this a lot in the last few months, especially um, last year, I'd say, uh, with with the effects of coronavirus and how Trump responded. Uh, but it really does come from a, a space of policy. Um, this is this was a strategy that Trump actually in his administration leaned on by looking at how anti-immigrant hate speech was fueled, you know, throughout the history of the United States. We're going to be talking to you, Mari Ushara, And then later we have Julia Doubleday, Jordan Zachary, and Napoleon on to talk about all that's happening right now in the news. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. There has been a lot of, uh, there's been a long history of, of anti-immigrant hate in this country, and we have seen a rise in anti-Asian hate since, uh, since COVID has hit this country, and of course that was under Trump. Our next guest talks about the history of where that came from and how it originated in the United States, and it's pretty shocking. Uh, Mari Uehara is a contributor to The Nation, and she wrote a piece titled The Anti-Asian Roots of Today's Anti-Immigrant Policies in the Nation. Thank you for joining us, Mari.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I was stunned, um,
1: and, and it's hard to, I think at this point, it's, it's given how much of our history we've we've been learning over the last few years, it's really come out, and. Um, thankfully so in, in, you know, one side of the Trump administration is I do think that more outlets are putting attention into these, these, it's not secret. They've been overt histories, but just not acknowledged enough. Um, I was really stunned to read this and I'm curious, you know, how you were started to find the the roots of, of, of anti-Asian hate. Like, where did you go to, to search for the roots initially?
2: Well, I mean, I should first say that um, I'm half Japanese American. My grandparents were interned during World War II, and they actually met in camps. And my grandmother was the chief lobbyist for the Japanese American Citizens League to get reparations for the camps in the 80s. So I just have some personal history um, that, you know, uh, makes me more aware of of. Of that history, but you know, I think like any kid, when you're younger, you just want to play sports, hang out with your friends. So it wasn't until much later that I started digging a bit more deeply into it. And one of the um, one of the events that that sort of set me off a little bit was to continuously hear about how FDR policies would be the solution. Um, to um, anti-immigrant hate, to racism, so on and so forth, If that if we just implement um, progressive econo- economic policies, which I support, by the way, um, that that would just magically erase a lot of these issues. And so... Um you know, as I was hearing that i I of course thought of my grandparents who were put in camps by FDR and you know wanted to dig a little bit more deeply so i you know, I did what anyone did I read a lot of books um there's uh a ton of material it's just not talked about a lot um a lot of historians have written on it then you know old newspaper articles um. For the internment camps themselves, there was a commission report that's really well written and actually a good read. Um, so if anyone has some time to like sink into like the commission report on the internment camps, it's 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 very well written. And then from there, I just kept going. But I, I think you know the point is there there was this hundred year um, anti Asian specifically campaign in the west in California, Oregon, and Washington and it started as these states were became states so it's it's the start of this country's history. Um
1: let's just just for, for for folks who may not be familiar or you know it's been a while since they learned the history can can you sort of like run through how the internment camps
2: originated under FDR? Yeah. So um and that's sort of the complicated question with this is that they they didn't originate um, during World War II. There's sort of this mythology that Pearl War, uh, Pearl Harbor happened, and then that was the impetus to put um, to round up 100,000 Japanese Americans, mostly um, on the West Coast. Um, they had to settle their matters within 24 hours, which meant leaving a lot of property behind. Give up their civil rights and go into these um, concentration camps. Um, so there's this mythology that that happened because of Pearl Harbor, um, but it's not true. What happened was, for decades and decades prior to World War II, there were a lot of anti-Asian groups um, on, in California, in Washington, and Oregon. Who had been trying for years to get um, Asian Americans, first Chinese Americans, then later Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans, and so forth, um, pushed out of this country, and so Pearl Harbor was really their excuse to get it done. When folks were rounded up, you know, were there were
1: they first generation? Were they recent immigrants? What? was there any sort of okay you know if, if you're an american citizen if you're born on this land you can't be rounded up um even though you're descendant of no it's How do they classify? No, I think
2: the majority of Japanese Americans who were rounded up were um, born here, were U.S. citizens. Wow. Um, So for example- I did not know that. And and that's really shocking. Yeah. So for example, I mean, both my grandmother and grandfather were born born here. Um, You know, my grandmother often talks about one of the things that was really tough about it was that she was going to be the first- um child and her family to graduate from college and that because they're in camps, her her parents who, you know, worked so hard weren't able to see her, you know, hmm. walk down the aisle, which is, you know, an immigrant dream for a lot of people who come here is making those um steps towards a more stable life. Um, but yeah, I the majority were um American citizens and their civil rights were just wiped away because they were Asian.
1: And and how did they round folks up? Like where where did they was there a registry? I'm just trying to I, I don't understand how do you know who's because we were having these conversations under the Trump administration when he was saying, you know, we're going to round people up. How are you how who what do you and and, and there've been attempts in places like Florida where you know yeah. they go through the roles and it's based on somebody's name. Is that how they
2: did it? You know, I'm not totally sure where they they were going through the rules, but for a, for decades, um, even so prior to the Japanese Americans, the Chinese Americans were a big target, and they basically started um, making them carry papers. So, like a lot of those, um, and that was some of that was created in reaction to uh white americans a lot of them immigrants themselves by the way a lot of these groups that were um saying we got to keep out these di- dirty diseased um uh dangerous asians um were white immigrants themselves <laughs> um and so you know um some of these like sort of show me your paper laws um, sort of started um on the west coast from these groups that were anti-chinese, and there were a, lo- a lot of them, like you know almost every single um ward in San Francisco all over
1: um all right so so you let's let's get back to your your piece because um there was a man named Hinki who was murdered. Yeah.
2: Can you tell us a little about him and and the significance of this this story? Yeah, so um, Hanky was, um, it seems to be a woodworker working um, right outside of Seattle in Port Washington um, as a logger. And um, we only have like maybe three, four paragraphs spread over like three newspapers. So you sort of have to read between the lines as you're reading these clips. Um, but he was murdered um, by a sharp implement. His head was split open. And then sometime after that, the, the logging um, company where he worked said, oh, we don't have any Chinese workers and burnt down the lodgings um, where um, Chinese um, immigrant labor workers um, had been housed and so between that sort of weird denial and his murder, he, uh, I think there's the perception that he was probably murdered as, as part of like a uh, race-motivated um, murder um, as a signal that the white people in that area did not want Chinese um, people there. And this was very common um, throughout this area. There were pogroms um all throughout the west where they would just drive chinese populations entire chinese populations out of town. so you know there's and, certain- and who was doing that it was organizations or government leaders um it was you know it was a cross class effort there were newspapers that published um pretty vile editorials or mm-hmm. you know articles about asian americans Um, there were a lot of labor groups that used anti-Asian agitation as a um, organizing tool. And and the labor leaders at the time admitted to this. They said anti-Asian, anti-Chinese agitation is a really effective tool for getting people to come to our meetings and join our cause. So um, you had a lot of sort of you know, if you're a progressive looking back at this time, it's it's very mixed because these were the same groups that were also agitating for eight-hour working days and a lot of other, you know, very positive um, labor policies. But to to achieve some of that, a lot of them used anti-Asian agitation as an organizing tool. And so labor groups were a huge part of, unfortunately, the anti-Asian movement on the West Coast. And then politicians joined in, policemen joined in. It was, uh, you know, across a, a lot of sectors of white society at the time.
1: Was there pushback at the time? Was there any anybody um, in the Asian community or otherwise saying this is not right and... and- Uh, it seems like a a horrifying effect of of groupthink in a way that that everybody started joining the bandwagon.
2: Yeah, there was um, pushback both within um, the uh, Chinese-American community, the Japanese-American community. Um, They had some white allies at the time. There was a merchant um, Chinese-American class in the U.S., um, and they would sometimes try appealing through um, diplomacy diplomatic means um and so sometimes uh there would be help from the government although it was certainly circumscribed um and then you know a a lot of them would try and hire lawyers appeal to the courts um do that kind of thing but um racism was a pretty strong force. So they, they were fighting back, but it would take decades and decades and decades for them to overcome, um, some of these like extremely harsh, um, violent movements along with very racist policies.
1: Uh, you call this, this, this Western strategy. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it, it, it has
2: similarities to Jim Crow laws, right? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, as I've been watching what's been happening with the Trump administration and a lot of the anti-immigration movement in this country, I think that we forget how deep the history of that is and that Um, You know, it's a it's a three pronged effort. You know, there's media involved. There are elites involved. And then there are often, unfortunately, working class whites involved as well. And so using anti immigration um, sentiment is a very old tool in this country. Um, And in The West, it was specifically used against Asian-Americans, again, as I mentioned, to get people to join labor groups, to get people to vote for them um, in elections and all these other efforts. So it was kind of, um, you know, it is tough to look at that history because some of it's wrapped up with um, good labor politics.
1: Um, let's talk about Trump for a bit, because you mentioned this political scientist named Larry Bartels of Vanderbilt, uh, and how
2: Trump tapped into him. Um, tell us about what, what was going on there. Yeah. So I, one of the things I was most surprised by when I started digging into this was that Trump was not, um, necessarily always super anti-immigrant in 2014 when, um, Mitt Romney made some comments about, you know, keeping people out of this country. Um, Trump's reaction to that was, that's terrible. All these people want to come to this country and like work hard. And um, what happened in 2015 is he had some of his advisors do some research on um, talk news radio and found out via that basically market research, you know, the guy is a marketer that people were really chomping at the bit um, about um, this, quote unquote, illegal alien issue. And so um, his advisors figured out a mnemonic device to keep Trump focused on this issue that they found out that people were really into. And that was build a, build a wall. Um, and so it wasn't as though he stumbled into this anti-immigrant sentiment. They researched it. They found an existing reservoir of it in this country. Um, and then they tapped into it and really drove it home for that first election.
1: There is a playbook. I mean, you, you, you talk about how during a speech he said something like if, if, if people, he seems to be losing people, <laughs> he, would, he would start – with the anti-immigrant sentiment. But what are the things in the playbook that uh, we may may not even be aware of um, that really surprised you?
2: Um, Well, you know, I think that it was just surprising that they had done this research initially to um, figure out that this was something that he tapped into. I think there's a general perception that he kind of felt this in his bones and um, went out there and connected with people over it, but it was very intentional. Um, But I think uh, uh, build a wall is a very catchy slogan and that a lot of people tend to bond over othering other groups of people in this country. Um, And so um, tapping into that well of sentiment that we belong here, but other people don't is very powerful, unfortunately.
1: Um, in terms of, of this this story not really being intertwined into um, works about FDR or not being given enough attention when we talk about FDR, I mean, last night we did a show, we talked about FDR and we had an FDR expert on. Uh, and... I mean, this is this is brought up a lot, right? This is our complicated history. Do you feel as if anybody has acknowledged? And I, I don't mean, I mean, the, just in internment camps. I mean, the 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 missing history. Do you think that there's an a, adequate attention or acknowledgement by labor groups who were partly responsible for this? Uh, you know, Western. You know, whether it's 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 a governor of California saying, you know, these are the sins of our past, or Um, any other sort of progressives? I mean, is is there attention, enough attention or any attention being made?
2: You know, I think there's general acknowledgement of the internment camps. You know, there's some awareness of them. There's some awareness of the Chinese massacre of 1871 in Los Angeles. But I don't think that people have really read a lot of the history. I don't think it's considered essential. It's sort of this unfortunate happenstance and that people don't really wanna deal with it. Um, I think specifically within today's progressive movement, it's been really disappointing um, how many progressives and labor activists um, almost actively erase Asian American history. And and I would say Asian American labor history. We're talking about miners, farmers, migrant workers, people who made cigars and um, dug ditches and built railroads. And that history is sort of gets swept under the carpet because it's not convenient for the labor movement. And, you know, I too wish that it was really as simple as like, we just put out some um, progressive policies that like benefi- benefited the working class, and then um, that would sort of ease at least some racism. Unfortunately, that was not the case for my grandparents and more than a hundred thousand other Japanese Americans in this country.
1: Well, because it was exclusive too. I mean, the economic policies uh, only affected those that they wanted to. Yeah to, to take part in them. And I think, you know, maybe that's the difference today, partly so in some, some unions, at least Um, what are the lessons given the rise in anti-Asian hate since COVID uh, and, and Donald Trump, you know, sort of uh, put out the rhetoric, the, the, the hateful rhetoric, what are some of the lessons that we should be aware of right now as this hate has, I don't know if it's, it's it's continued at the same levels, but uh, it's definitely risen in the last two
2: years. I think one of the unfortunate lessons that the, is that there are no easy solutions to this problem. Anti-immigrant hate is a very powerful um, aspect of identity politics in this country um, that has been um, reinforced by popular media. Um, it's been passed down from generation to generation. It's in, it's reinforced by politicians and by policymakers, and I I wish it was not such a powerful force. But I think that we have not really reckoned with and acknowledged how strong it is, and how animating it is uh, for a good portion of people in this country, and. Um, I, I wish that the solution was progressive economic policies, but I think that they should be pushed on their own merit and not, um, out of some fantasy that it's Mm going to solve this very deep identity politics issue in this country. Mari,
1: super interesting conversation. Um, thank you for writing this and for, I learned quite a bit from you. Um, so thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You can check out Mari's article in The Nation. Uh, We will have it up on screen and in our information box, but go check it out. It's titled The Anti-Asian Roots of Today's Anti-Immigrant Policies. All right, guys. You know we love our CBD. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has all types of products. They offer tinctures, gummies, lotions, coffee, all designed to help with stress, aches, and pains. I don't know if you know this, but they actually took a Ben and Jerry's farm and turned it into uh, diversified. It is what they say uh, to grow premium hemp in Vermont. And on top of that, they've got really good juju, obviously, because Ben and Jerry's is a great company, a very progressive company. They supported Bernie, shocker. Uh, But on top of that, they also are just a good company. Sunset Lake CBD is a good company that uh, supports, you know, workers and a rural economy, of course. Uh, their minimum wage is $15 an hour, and the employees own the majority of their company. That's huge. On top of all that, they also support independent media like the Nomi show Majority Report. And the David Packman Show. Uh, if you've never tried it, this is the time to do it. You can get 20% off if you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and you can try all sorts of products. There's dog biscuits now. I'm looking at my dog right now who has a lot of anxiety, literally staring at him. He's sitting by the door waiting for, uh, I don't know, waiting for whoever <laughs> to show up. And uh, the thing that calms him down is a little Sunset Lake CBD dog biscuit because it's got that CBD oil that chills him out. He's one of those poodlely dogs that always is, you know, worried about the apocalypse happening. Any any five, you know, any any second from now, um, Bijou. During the lockdown, I've talked about this. He got very used to being around humans, and then when we started to go out, his anxiety levels started to go up, and he was like, "I can't be alone." And at first, I was like playing around, giving him different you know, calming treats that they sell, and then Sunset Lake CBD came out with these dog biscuits, which are incredible. All right, go check out sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your order. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. All right, we have Julia Doubleday, our friend of the show. She is, of course, you know, you might know her from another show called uh, The Committee Program, which... Airs on Mondays here on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, 3 p.m. Uh, she's the deputy director of committee and she was campaign manager for Julie Oliver's congressional campaign in Texas's 25th district. She also worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign 2017 and Beta Rourke when he was cool before he turned not cool. After he turned, he went from not cool to cool to not cool again. That's my editorial. Julia, I feel like I need to see Julia's face as I say that. Would you agree with him on that? Like he was... Yeah, he's,
3: you know, he, he was on the skateboard and then the skateboard went away, he became less cool. Every yeah. time he was on the skateboard was really the, the height of the cool Beto era, I think. Is he actually And he started to get on... I think he is. Yeah. He was like in a band. I think he was like oh, yeah. kind of, you know, going for that, like I was a cool punk kind of thing. And then during the presidential, it turned more into like the jumping on tables thing. And that sort of became... A little too much. I like Beto. I hope he becomes I mean, governor.
1: Better <laughs> you know, than- over Greg Abbott. Over Greg Abbott. Yeah, over Greg Abbott. Exactly. Yeah. Um, maybe it'll work. Who knows? Maybe it'll work. Uh, all right. I felt like you would have a lot to say on what's going on with Bolsonaro. Um, this is you know we've covered Bolsonaro a few times in Brazil, and I just came out of this climate conference, which I'm sure you're aware of. I was in Scotland and I was horrified that no one brought up Bolsonaro's name and the first person too was act to do it was actually closing speech of the conference, Al oh, Gore. Wow. Um Al Gore was like, hey guys, I don't know if you know, but like anti-immigrant policies uh, and anti- are are linked to fascism and fascism. Uh, is linked to climate change. And if you don't deal with climate change, you're gonna have more immigrants and then they're gonna and so he's explaining all this. And he's like, oh, by the way, there's this man named Bolsonaro who's a fascist and who is uh, basically wrecking the Amazon and we're all gonna die. Maybe you should pay attention to that. that that's wow. how he said it. Oh, exactly well, good. how he said it. Same, same thing. Well, turns out there might be some good news, but then it gets really complicated, from what I understand. Let's play that um that one clip of Bolsonaro with Reuters, Bradley.
4: A Senate investigation in Brazil recommended on Tuesday that President Jair Bolsonaro be charged with homicide for mishandling the COVID-19 health crisis. The report was prepared by opposition Senator Renan Caleros and said Bolsonaro's mistakes led to the death of thousands. It recommended 13 criminal charges, including genocide against Brazil's indigenous population, for leaving their communities vulnerable to the virus. Meanwhile, the Brazilian president has dismissed the probe as politically motivated and did not immediately respond to a request for comment. It's unlikely he'll face a trial for charges as they'd have to be brought by Brazil's prosecutor general, a seat Bolsonaro appointed. The nearly 1,200-page document alleges that Bolsonaro deliberately turned down early offers to purchase vaccines, which delayed Brazil's inoculation campaign and cost an estimated 95,000 lives. The report also says Bolsonaro was guided by quote an unfounded belief in the theory of herd immunity by natural infection and the existence of a treatment. He has been widely criticized by public health experts for rallying against lockdowns, refusing to wear a mask in public and declaring he has not yet been vaccinated. Bolsonaro also pushed unproven remedies for the illness such as antimalarial hydroxychloroquine. The draft report still needs to be voted on by the Senate and could be vetoed and altered. The vote is scheduled to take place next week.
1: So, great summary of this. Um, Folks may remember during uh, the UN meetings, Bolsonaro came to New York and was denied the ability to eat inside of a restaurant because we in New York have vaccination rules where you have to prove your vaccination status. And so he was forced to eat a slice of pizza on the street. Poor Bolsonaro. Mm I mean, this to me. I mean, what I want to ask you, Julia, about is—is their the complicated aspect of their legal system? Um, Some are saying that it might not go to the prosecutor; it might go to somebody else. But uh, this this reminds me of what happened with Lula and the trials that were held, um, you know, in (laughs) which led to obviously the rise of Bolsonaro. And that the legal system is not a fair legal system in in Brazil. Can you like explain? to americans how one of the largest countries in the world is able to essentially not have like checks and balances <laughs> and democracy, supposedly um
3: well i mean i i have to be honest that i don't know as much you know in detail about the brazilian legal system but i will say that um you know what we're seeing right now i think you know Bolsonaro is dismissing this as just sort of playing politics. I don't think that he's worried that there's going to be a legitimate um, move to remove him from office, whether or not that's founded or unfounded is unclear. But, um, you know, the entire time that Trump was in office, we saw these like very clear parallels between the two of them. So they both have this attitude of like, the law can't touch me, essentially. So it's very hard to know based on anything Trump says or anything Bolsonaro says What the truth of the matter is, you know, Trump has this very similar attitude of like, come and get me like it doesn't matter. I can shoot someone in the middle of the street, nothing's gonna happen to me. So Bolsonaro obviously feels super untouchable. Um, The degree to which that's true. I mean, if you look at Trump. Trump, in a lot of ways, like, wasn't wrong. You know, he he didn't win um, in this last election. But at the same time, like, he's not really facing any consequences for a lot of the stuff that he did. Mm-hmm. It's still possible for him to run again. He didn't get impeached successfully. He's not, um, he wasn't removed from office. He isn't forbidden from running again, even though, you know, I think anyone who looks at what happened at Jan- on January 6th would say that he was not discouraging what was going on. Um, And if you look at sort of the history of how coups take place, how they happen, um, you know, he certainly seemed to foment the idea that he should remain in office and that the election was not a real election, which is basically the role of the executive in the coup. Like they're not the one that necessarily goes in with a gun and shoots people. They're just the one that says, I'm actually the president. So you got to do something about this. Um, but yeah, so all of this is to say that there's these very, very strong parallels. I think that Bolsonaro hasn't gotten his, and I don't think this, this new, um, these new charges, which now I think they've actually changed. Originally they were going to charge him for homicide and now they're, they're charging him with crimes against humanity right. or they want to charge him with crimes against humanity. um, to get a little deeper into that, I think we it's also interesting to compare that to our situation in the u s because the the charges are that six hundred thousand people have died in Brazil of this mm-hmm. disease. Um, and seven hundred thousand people have died here. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that even the fact that bolsonaro is being accused of crimes against humanity, whereas I don't think anyone in the u s. has said, you know, Trump should be, like, tried at the Hague for crimes right. against humanity is, like, almost... It's almost uh, a, a bad comparison for the U.S. because in, in our case, you know, the worst thing we wanted to do was remove Trump from office, but nobody talked about putting him in jail, which is what they're talking about in in this case.
1: Um, I mean, it is... Okay, so, so let's go back to the Hague part because crimes against humanity is very specific because it's an international... Uh, it's something that internationally the international community can rally around rather than just relying on a very broken um, justice system in, in Brazil. And just to remind folks, the justice system in Brazil, I mean, part of the reason Lula was convicted was because the same person who was prosecuting him was the judge, very basic way of, of explaining it. Mm -hmm. Um, Which (laughs) you think can't be done in the U S and then you look at Stephen Donziger's case and you're like, Oh no, you can do this here too. Um, maybe not legally, but yes, it's, it's possible though. Uh, we'll get to that later, but with Bolsonaro, I mean, he, it's not just that he was aware of the science. Um, it's not just that he refused to accept the science, refused to take the vaccinations, which even if you don't believe in the science and, 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 and you, you could still make the vaccinations available. Um, It's not like you're forcing people to take the vaccinations. You you know, people still have the freedom of choice. He was pushing other drugs uh, that conveniently so was was Donald Trump, um, hydrochloroquine. And then Mm -hmm. simultaneously, you know, of course, the most vulnerable communities, which are already at risk in Brazil. Uh, Brazil has an extraordinary rate of poverty. Uh, The indigenous communities are... Are really struggling, um, especially around the Amazon, where he has been wiping away the Amazon uh, in ways that we can't even, I think, mathematically process at this point. And of course, that's a lot of uh, the indigenous communities are—they um, don't have hospitals close by. They're, uh, you know, on the front lines right now, um, fighting to protect their land, to protect their water, to protect their sovereignty, and. It's just multiple th- things are going on at once. Um, and, of course, you know, did the death rates reflect the fact that he is just more interested? He you know, talks about this as politics. Well, you're more interested in politics than you are people's health. Now, if this is a precedent in The Hague, if they set the precedent here, um, Trump or not Trump, I mean, Governor Cuomo had to step down. People, It's not just because the sexual uh, assault allegations. It's because he also is under investigation for the nursing home deaths where, you know, over 10,000 people – elderly were 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 after it was the alarm was sounded he basically covered it up so I mean this is what does it mean when you're like committing crimes against humanity? Like how does that play out in the Hague? Do you know? Yeah. Well I think okay so A couple things. First, I don't think The Hague has actually entered the
3: picture at this point. I think that it's right now still something that's being talked about internally in Brazil, but what they're talking about is is that he should be tried for crimes against humanity. That language I think is actually really important to bring into our um, language when we're talking about Western politicians or politicians that aren't um, the official enemies of the U.S. So right now, um, there's been a lot of talk about how Um, the words genocide or crimes against humanity or dictator or authoritarian, those are all like very liberally used on countries that, um, we have a a sort of, um, negative relationship with, but any country that's an ally of ours, we sort of look the other way. So, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia, we don't really like publish these long, um, hysterical news articles about how authoritarian they are and how they need regime change so we know for a long time that these terms can basically be weaponized against specific people um for political reasons but i think it is important to to use the covid pandemic to face um what a lot of our politicians have been doing for a lot of years which is essentially following this like death logic of capitalism which is like Essentially the underlying logic is that you should let every poor person die before you let one rich person be inconvenienced. That is the underlying logic. <laughs> like every poor person should die before one rich person has to do one thing they don't want to do. So in other words, like in Hawaii right now we're seeing that like people don't have drinking water, but the resorts you can still have, all the tourists still have as much water as they want. And that's a right. great example. Any sane person who looks at that situation say, well of course the rich people should just not be using as much water at the resort so everyone can drink water, but that's not the logic of capitalism. The logic of capitalism is whoever has the most money gets the most stuff. So, um, you know, I think that in and itself, su- in and of itself is a crime against humanity. I think that, like, what we're doing to the planet is a massive crime against humanity. I think that, you know, doing committing these acts that are leading to the potential extinction of our species is the biggest crime against humanity you could possibly um, imagine, but because that language has been so weaponized, um, politically, um, you know, it's just not seen as something you can accuse someone of in polite society. You can't say, well, I think that Donald Trump committed crimes against humanity because it just sounds so like over the top Over the top. Yeah. What he did was over the top. Like what he did condemned a lot of people to die. Even the, even the fact that he came back from you know, immediately getting all of the most expensive treatments and yep. being hospitalized, and came back and just like took the mask off and was like, "I don't need a mask." And she's like,
1: "I mean, why would you do that?" Like, <laughs> this is strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, but but this is it's it's so interesting because like we we we've been collectively looking back at history uh, for the past you know several years and 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 looking at the 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 rise of fascism. Um, in Europe right and and other places too and trying to get a handle on like well, well well then what and then what but i'm i'm so i think what the difference is today is that even though the rise of fascism in Europe was a slow roll society moves faster today and it's not in it's it's not that we're moving at a slower Pace, we're not. It's just that things are happening faster, and we're becoming numb. Just as they were numb because it was happening as it was like a slow roll into fascism, it's been a fast roll into fascism. It's just like the ante has been upped, and you know, and it's really completely numbed us from from saying actually this is a rise uh crime against humanity. Yes, like a pandemic. Like we should all just be in the streets, um, and we're not. I mean, we shouldn't be for yeah,
0: pandemic you know, reasons, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like,
1: yeah. like there's. It, it's not, it's it, it's like people are saying, oh, well, this rhetoric is so over the top, but it's not over the top when you actually look at what's happened to us in the last. I mean, what's happening
3: is over the top. I mean, I, right. I certainly have a sort of feeling of powerlessness and helplessness when I'm scrolling through the news because we see these same headlines every single day. We've been seeing them for years and they keep getting um, more and more and more frequent. It's just like, the world is ending. Should we do something about it? Like, I don't know. Like, should we, should we do something? And it's just like, yes, like, yes, we should do something. Like, I I hate that this is still a conversation. Like we're still just bogged down in this morass of like, um, of just not wanting to change things, not wanting to change things. And I think like, you know, you're talking about this like feeling of sort of quickly rolling into fascism. I think it's the reality is, um, as we've been talking about for a long time, all of these sort of contradictions within capitalism continue to be heightened to the point where something has to break. So in other words, like you can design a system where you say freedom is that everyone can have as much as they want all of the time. And the goal is to always have more. And that can be the design of your system, but that only works as long as it works. And then you run out of... (laughs) what other people, then you run out of other people's stuff, as they say, you you know, like you're going to run out. So (laughs) at some point when that system breaks, what comes next? So I think that the Mm. reason we, we continue to have this conversation around, well, the country is polarizing. I mean, it's polarizing in the sense that people understand that the status quo is broken and they have two different ideas about which way they want to go. And one is to go in this direction and, you know, ra- you know, radically rebuild society and rebuild it in a way that's sustainable. And another group of people are like, I just want to keep things the way they are and let's kill everyone else to do it. And those are the people who are going to the moon. Cause they're like, or Mars, cause they think they're going to go live on Mars and they're not. So they, you know, it's a bad plan. I'm just letting them know now. <laughs>
1: it's not a good plan. <laughs> well, no, but it's okay. Cause they started a climate fund. Yeah, I don't know if you know that they have a. These
3: are people who can't even fly and coach, and they think they're going to live on Mars. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be that fun.
1: (laughs) Um, All right, but this is I'm 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 glad that you're talking about this because I have been really grappling with the way that we're organizing now. Um, I don't think it's working, and I'm going to start beating the drum on this a little bit more. As much as I, we have so many allies, allies, and wonderful friends in the movement. You know, the tactics that we're using are the same tactics that we've been using for decades and generations, and it's not working. And, you know, case in point, which we'll get to later in the panel, is Joe Manchin and and Kirsten Sinna being like, I don't care. Oh, you're threatening me a primary? I don't care. That's in four years. Also, like, I almost lost the general. I mean, this is this is my theory. We are not thinking critically and creatively about how to get out of this disaster. And frankly, I don't think we're doing enough. We're not doing enough pushback against Biden. We're not doing enough you know, thoughtful pushback against Schumer because, you know, these people don't operate. You have to think what moves these people. These people are in charge of our destinies. What moves them? Is it protesting them? Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but that does not move them. That did not move the civil rights movement. Hate to break it to y'all, but like the civil rights movement, you know, shame was effective, an effective strategy as MLK said, but it is not the only strategy. Making phone calls is not the only strategy. Right, but there has to be a strat there there has to be more creativity in how we approach this and And for folks who studied movements, um the most successful movements have been extraordinarily creative. It isn't just you know, million people on the streets. How did that work for BLM? Seriously, I mean, let's have a real conversation. How did the women's march work out? Yeah, there has to be something more effective because they're numb to this now. They've got a toolkit that responds to this, which is you know everything from tech companies, uh, you know, jiggling the algorithms, so the left isn't able to organize as well anymore and get the same views anymore. To uh, you know, quietly behind the scenes, working with some new left leaders to to you know work with them on things like voting for the military budget or or voting for the dome. If they get one little line in there, I mean, this is this is how they're responding to our movement, and we're just doing the same things. I mean, I think that
3: um, you know, from day one, the reality is that the system is built to resist radical change. So that's, I mean, that's one thing that we just have to know going in is that no matter how much work you do to elect people, you're still electing them into that same system. Sorry. I'm like, so stripy now, but (laughs) I don't know what's going on with my, uh, my lighting, but, um, it's my anyway. Um, but yeah, I think, I think regardless, like you're not going to, change the system radically from within the system just because it's not built to accommodate that so you know if you look at the way our global economy is structured the way our global political system is structured um there are all of these international bodies like the um, you know the IMF um, that have a lot of power that have no sort of democratic input from us or from people around the world um, and that sort of I think ultimately like this idea that we live in this democracy and everything's determined in this room and we send people to the room is just totally false. I mean, like even over and above whatever's going on with our electeds, we also have these global governing bodies that don't have um, sort of democratic control to them. And that, I mean, that's also one of the reasons behind um, Brexit, you know, obviously I wasn't in favor of Brexit because the way that they support for it was on this idea of like well we don't want migrants we don't want migrants but the way they also pitched it was like look the eu is ultimately not very democratic because we don't get to really decide what what the eu chooses to do and that's i mean i think if we want to have democracy that people trust and are engaged with all of these things need to enter the realm of public accountability and right now that's just not the case
1: well, and it's it's even in a country like ours where we are technically designed in a more democratic way, designed in a more democratic way. Um, those types of those forms of accountability. I mean, just going back to the point is, is they're not working. They're not working right. because the global interests and 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 you know because of things like the filibuster, and it can be, um, it can be basically. That one person, I mean, this is, is, this is ultimately what it is, is it's our system is flawed where one person can hold up all change, including climate change um, right. pushback. Um, we have Napoleon legend. We're we're going to go into the panel conversation. We're going to do a rolling panel today. Uh, let's bring Napoleon in. What's up, Napoleon? How you doing?
0: Hey, how y'all doing? I'm good. Napoleon. Good,
1: good. Hey, what's up, Napoleon? Um, really? <laughs> So Good. we are. We were just talking about Bolsonaro and uh, and 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 essentially how governments um, moved into a conversation just about how our movements are not able to essentially hold our governments accountable anymore. It's just the, the tactics don't seem to be working. We have to shift tactics. They're shifting tactics. So I, I do want to talk about uh, you know the, the elephant in the room, which is of course um, what's going on right now on Capitol Hill and. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically with Joe Manchin uh, holding stuff up, so there is let's let's play this clip. There's a CNN clip of uh, what's happening in West Virginia because what I want you guys to think about is a lot of folks are saying, well, you know, Joe Manchin's going to answer to what West Virginians want, and that's how you're going to be able to move him. And I don't buy that, honestly. I think a lot of people, even in Biden's circle, believe that. I just don't buy it. I don't. I don't buy it. I don't think popularity is determining how he acts or doesn't act. Because if that were the case, uh, what we see right now would shock Joe Manchin. Let's play the fun.
5: Hey, a of a key component of President Biden's agenda, his plans to combat climate change, is Senator Joe Manchin, whose own state, of course, is facing the severe impacts of climate change. Renee Marsh is out front.
6: Our house is already called. I us in a baby here. And one, two, three, five adults. We're in a car. And and that, we- the cars flooding full of water. Floodwaters submerged
7: people, cars, and homes in what was dubbed the thousand year flood. The town of Clendenin, West Virginia, almost wiped off the map in 2016. And this past summer, parts of the state saw more flooding. From raging, deadly floods to widespread drought, West Virginians over the past few years have faced weather whiplash, and scientists predict it will get worse.
8: It was rising about about a foot an
7: hour. Jimmy Raider, a retired Iraq War veteran, survived the deadly 2016 West Virginia flooding, but his home did not. Five years later, he's still rebuilding. In the meantime, he, his wife, and three dogs call this camper home. It's really
5: tough uh, with my PTSD um, being in such
6: tight quarters.
7: Look around the small West Virginia town of Clendenin and it's still without a grocery store, bank and elementary school. Yet Senator Joe Manchin is blocking the most aggressive climate change legislation in U.S. history. This neighborhood lost safe access to their homes after the 2016 flood weakened the foundation of this bridge and rusted it out. If someone dialed 911, could not come across this bridge. Yeah, they'd be afraid that they wouldn't make it that The bridge
2: might collapse.
7: This bridge is Connie Richards' lifeline to everyday life, including medical care.
2: You just keep moving along and pray you get to the other side.
7: But even in the face of severe weather and its costly destruction, neither Raider nor Richard blame climate change. I'm not buying into the whole climate change thing. So if somebody said, in order to make sure a flood like this never hits your community again, we need to get rid of coal, what would you say? Flat it flat again in the second largest coal-producing state in the nation. All
1: right, so they bury the lead there with coal. Um, coal is is extremely dangerous, obviously for, for for you know the effects on on climate change. Uh, we've mentioned Al Gore a lot, but he has written extensively about this. Um, West Virginia is not the poorest country or poorest state in the country, by the way. Mississippi is. And Puerto Rico is three times more poor than Mississippi. And what I just saw there reminded me of, right after Maria, uh, wobbly bridges that had fallen apart because of one storm and completely isolated communities from being able to go to the hospital, get access to uh, different medicines. Obviously, they didn't have power at the time. Um, And here you have West Virginia where they're unwilling, unwilling to to accept climate change, despite the fact that they're in very similar situations. But how much does that play into Joe Manchin's thinking? Cause I don't buy it. I don't think it is about coal. I don't think it is about West Virginians not believing in climate change or West Virginians being more conservative. I just think it's about money with him and that's it. Let's Napoleon. What do you think?
0: I agree. I mean, I mean, it, it, it kind of is because if, if, if the money is, is coming from, from, from these types of sources, of course, he, he he's just a slick politician. I think he understands the environment of like West Virginia and what exactly he needed to to get power and to stay in power. And it, it's very sad when you see, especially the end, when when people are like suffering from certain things and they're so oblivious to like the context of what's happening to them, and they can't even imagine that these things could easily be fixed or you know, they, there could be solutions to their problems. It's it's almost as if they they accepted like what they're going what what they're going through, and and we see somebody like Manchin not not budging at all. He probably feels like he doesn't have to like understanding like the, that that the main the constituents that the people that get keep him elected. Yeah, he has enough power to wield that he's not going anywhere. I mean that's the only thing I could imagine without knowing the specifics of that of that state.
1: I mean Julia it's this is somebody who has such a strong name in West Virginia because he's held so many different seats in 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 West Virginia but I mean you have to be absolutely heartless if you're a politician you know that has any sort of constituent services and traveling around the district and still acting as if <laughs> this is in the better interests of West Virginians whether it's rebuilding bridges or 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 fighting off climate change
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly money in politics, you definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of what his motivator is. Um, It's not a mystery. There are a lot of electeds who there's not really any relationship between the people who elected them and what they want to accomplish when they're in office. Um, It's really more whoever gave them money is, is really who is pulling the strings and who their boss is. This is something that we've you know, understand at this point in time. Um, I think something that was interesting in that clip is that that woman at the end, you know, they sort of framed it as like, well, these people are still climate deniers in front of, uh, in spite of everything. He was talking to that woman and he he asked her, um, well, what would you say if, you know, we had to stop coal um, for this bridge not to get washed out again? She said, well, let it get washed out again. She actually wasn't denying um, climate change when she said that. She was actually acknowledging that there was a link between coal and the bridge but she said that she still would rather deal with climate change than lose coal and i think what that really speaks to is that people um around the country and around the world they quite simply don't have or don't see the options for like what a new world could look like so we're putting people especially people who work in these industries in this impossible situation of like starve now or die later. And they're choosing die later because dying later is objectively better than starving now. Um, So that's not an irrational conclusion for someone who actually works in coal to make. Um, I remember also like on the campaign trail in Texas, hearing a story, I think maybe Beto told it about, um, he went and saw, he was talking about why he like, wasn't totally for banning fracking at the time. You know, this was like 2018 and, or no, maybe it was even 2017. And he was like, well, I met this family and they're worried because like their whole family is getting poisoned by the drinking water from fracking. But then like they said they don't want fracking to end because that's how they like make their money. Like that's the dad works in fracking. And I was like, well, can we just all acknowledge this is like a very fucked up question that you're posing to them? It's like, well, how can you not see the issue here is not like we should keep fracking going. Like the issue here is that like we're forcing people to choose between putting food in their kids mouths and, and poison poison. water or nothing, you know, like, so that's just not a good choice. It's not a real choice. Um, The reality is like, we do need to fundamentally transform this country from the ground up. And that's going to start with like taking care of the people, all of the people who would potentially be affected by, you know, not having their income
1: anymore. Well, it would also be uh, critical if someone like Joe Manchin would uh, support the infrastructure bill because his state will benefit. I mean, it, there, there's 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 so much in the infrastructure bill that his the oh, residents totally, of West yes. Virginia, proportionally, if you were to compare it to other states, they will benefit more proportionally in terms of tax dollars, in terms of uh, repairs and bridges and jobs, way more than a state like even New York, which, you know, has some of the same issues. And New York State has, you know, large rural communities. I think that's what really baffles my mind. Here is if if, if we want to actually pressure Joe uh, uh, Joe Manchin, Joe Biden could e- you know easily just get on stage and say something right. like, "Listen, Joe, we all know you're worried about the people. I- I'm you know I'm from I'm from Pennsylvania. I get it. We're worried about people losing their jobs. Well, this is the great thing about this bill. It provides jobs and infrastructure, and by the way, prepares everybody in the most vulnerable communities for the effects of climate change. It does." all of these things. Oh, and you also get healthcare, childcare, childcare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Let's bring in Jordan real quick because I want to continue to talk about the infrastructure bill. Uh, Jordan Zacharin. What's up, Jordan? Welcome to the show. Uh, We're we're doing a rolling panel today. It's really fun. (laughs) Jordan Zacharin, of course, is uh, over at at a a more, more perfect union. I always want to call it a more perfect union, uh, and of course, he runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Thanks for joining us, Jordan.
8: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So, um, I want to play this one clip of Janet Yellen, who, uh, in, in response to, do we have that up there? I'm looking for it right now. Yeah, there is Secretary Janet Yellen on MSNBC, who is she's so, so she's still Janet Yellen is still uh, pushing for every program right now in the infrastructure bill, and I as we're watching this, just think about,
0: mm.
1: I feel like we're having multiple fights at once about the infrastructure bill. And there's, there's I, the sense is I don't even know where we are because it doesn't seem like Joe, Joe Manchin is on the same page as Joe Biden and Secretary Yellen is on a different page. And I really am a bit confused about, and of course, you know, cinema has no stance at all about where she stands and what she's arguing over. Um, and I think that that, I don't know if that's intentional, but I think that's also why people are not responding the way that uh, maybe more, you know, elites in the media are when you're watching these panel shows, because it's very confusing. Let's play the clip.
5: I need to hear her say climate change because she's also apparently among the leading advocates for a carbon tax. And a carbon tax was off the table, we thought, but it appears to be back on the table as they, A, look for different ways to pay for things at like Kirsten Cinemas will sign off on. And they need different climate uh, ideas now that Manchin has shut it down. Is that where we're headed? Chuck, I mean, Secretary Yellen is at the White House right now. I was surprised that she put climate front and center. I was expecting that she would be pushing the most for making the expanded child tax credit permanent and uh, right. the money devoted to child care. So I was surprised that she put climate first. But my other takeaway was she is still saying everything should be in this thing. And if the answer is everything is going to be in this thing, then what are you going to do? Make it really, really short term? Well, if that's the case, you know, we could end up losing most of it if if in the next election, Republicans win. Look at the expanded child tax credit. They put it in the American Rescue Plan. And unless this reconciliation bill goes through and the child tax credit right. is in it, it'll be gone by the end of the year. So I thought that was interesting. And the other thing that I, I found interesting, we talked a lot about, the labor shortage, the labor shift. you know She thinks right. it's a good thing that workers are now getting paid more. And I said, well, what are you going to do about the fact that the Amazons of the world can pay people a whole lot more and offer bonuses? And she said, small businesses are just going to have to find a way to compete. I don't know how that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It
3: sounds like, like she's really worried about um, small businesses. It sounds like she really, really is... Concerned there. No, so, but she's about
8: When Janet Yellen's like the 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 base one, I think we're uh, <laughs> yeah we're talking about what you're. About. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, but this is Jordan. I, I want to ask you though, because because you're covering this regularly, and like I I have never seen the media, like mainstream neoliberal media, responding to some of these things. Like they're moving, they're to the left. It seems like they're just as frustrated as as we are. Um, the New York Times being extremely critical of, of the Biden administration um, and Manchin on climate change, how MSNBC just portrayed this. Uh, it just seems like there's some sort of like, like basically just being called out like this is this is a bluff. Is it a bluff? Is this all just like some sort of game to to kill this bill?
8: Well, you know what was interesting is when you mentioned the media like earlier this year they were obsessed with that worker that worker shortage thing, right? Oh, it, you know, it's the unemployment benefits that are that are stopping people from taking jobs because they're they're getting too much uh, they're getting they're, you're getting a few hundred dollars a month to sit at home and that's what helps people that's how they pay their rent like a couple hundred dollars. And it's like all, I mean, maybe it's an overcorrection, I'm not sure, but you know, we got Terry Moran from ABC News who's going out and doing these uh you know, he's he keeps I appreciate it, but you know, he keeps you know, promoting more corporate unions work and saying, you know, these people are out on strike and like i don't know you know back in 2016 2018 all these stories about you know angry white people right like they were pissed off that uh you know uh, trying to understand the trump people well like a tumble iowa is a lot of trump voters but there's also a big john deere plant so maybe just you know msnbc and cable news and all these places as long as it's white people that are angry they're willing to pay attention you know they're willing to say oh yeah no these are the working class who's assaulting the people which is true Uh, But, you know, now that it's, you know, now that it's, uh, you know, these sort of folks that, you know, might have a MAGA sign on their pickup, or if they don't have that, a Bernie sign on their pickup, maybe they're willing to talk about it then. Uh, But in terms of actually, is it Joe Manchin? Is he bluffing? I mean, what's amazing is that every single thing he wants, actually, I know you guys were talking about this, like, even having coal continuing to be the main source of energy in West Virginia is more expensive for people. The numbers are shooting up the prices because it costs so much money to maintain these coal plants. So he's not even doing it like we think of West Virginia, we think of coal because they use it so much. There are very few jobs left in it, and it costs people more and more money. There was like a, a generational flood a few years ago there because of climate change. And so when Joe Manchin is saying he's representing West Virginia voters, I think finally people are keying into, oh, maybe he's he's not. Maybe he's not actually doing what is best for these people. And they're reading through and, you know, I think uh, the work people have done to expose his own personal financials and uh, his interest in, uh, you know. Carbon cleaning, uh, coal cleaning, every single uh, every year makes five hundred thousand dollars from it. I think maybe that's like people are starting to call call his bluff.
1: I mean, people are calling his bluff, but um, Napoleon, I want to hear your thought. Do you, is this? I'll get you in a second, Juliet. Do you think this is a bluff? Do you think that this is the people are calling the bluff? The media is calling the bluff because
0: um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think everybody uh, everybody is seeing that they're, they're, there's something that, that that's not. The wheel's not turning correctly, and it's hard to pinpoint his, his intents. But we know that he's not—he's not good intention. But the thing is, I—I—I don't—I don't see anything that that can make him care. It doesn't seem like he responds to anything because even he moves the goalposts on what he says a few months yeah, ago and keeps. So it, it just seems like just obstruction for the sake of obstruction at some point, and I'm not seeing because the media's talking about him i see people on twitter tweeting all types of things about him and and calling him out and exposing what what he's doing and who he's supposedly working for which is not the people of west virginia per se but um my my question is what how can he be I, I, how how could we make him a, a honest uh, broker in this? And I, I don't know if it's it's possible at this point. I mean, I, he he just seems dead set on just shutting down everything, which is, once again goes to what you were saying. There's a there's a problem in the system if somebody like that to stop all progress just for just being stubborn.
8: You know what's interesting is that. West Virginia. And, you know, I I read a lot of local papers and news outlets and West Virginia more and more, they're increasingly starting to cover him in a critical way. Like the Charlotte, West, uh, you know, the Charlton Gazette, they were, they posting editorials about how they need to pass the freedom to vote act, which is Manson's bill. You know, there's a lot of news, a lot of places picked up the story about from CNN, about how people are struggling with electrical bills due to coal. So I think that's starting to come alive a little bit there. Like people, you know, I, I, I'm not in West Virginia, but I, I know that there is some pressure coming there. And, you know, his financials, I think, have really made it clear who he's actually fighting for. And so, you know, I want honestly one more thing. I was out uh, to lunch with a few friends this weekend and they have a two-year-old and she just does whatever she wants, which the two-year-old does. And she said, you know, it's re- we really should have like not indulged every single little thing she did because uh, now she just feels like there's no bosses. And I think it's what Democrats do with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema mm-hmm, for yeah. nine months um yeah. and you know two-year-olds will learn uh, i don't know that uh <laughs> we're at a point where we have enough time for cinema and mansion to learn so maybe uh i think looking back on it you know mansion lost his mind when bernie posted that op-ed in the the charleston gazette so you know maybe right. putting a little pressure on them and maybe bernie doing it other people maybe like they're not reacting well but maybe uh maybe it's not too late
0: julia and a- my my ad real quick from what Nomi- no 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 was saying um I think Joe Biden could just be really direct and lead, really lay it out, you know, and and, and, and really call call him out, like uh, Mansion Cinema and everything, Ooh. but in, in a very direct manner. Like, I, I, th- I think that they're, they're, they're circling around the issue, but we all know that's, what the problem is. And right. it just needs to come out of his mouth. Like, hey, Joe Manchin, we're waiting for you here. There's something we want to do this, this, this. And you're the one. What's going on? Right. What are you going to do?
1: And part of that, and Julia, you know, maybe you can touch on this too when you respond. It's not just that it, who's going to pressure. It's going to be more Bernie Sanders, more Elizabeth Warrens, more, uh, you know, Sherrod Browns, Jared Browns, more other senators coming forward and saying, hey, Joe Biden, like, we're trying. We're trying behind the scenes. We need you to lead because, you know, we're going to start doing this more publicly. We're going to do a rally in West Virginia and we're going to expose the fact that like Joe Manchin doesn't care about your jobs. He's on his yacht. I don't know. Julia, what do you think?
3: Um, a few things. So, you know, I think the media is really actually complicit in the, the failure of the bill to be, to be moved forward at this point, just because I think if we look at the sort of opposite situation where you had like just Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren holding out on something and refusing to sign it, the media would be having a meltdown, like for the last like however many months they just would have been, it would have been nonstop wall to wall. These, these people are tanking the Democrats. Like they are traitors, like fuck them. Like they wouldn't exactly say those words, but it would be as close as you can say in the New York times. Um, and they, that's not what they do with cinema and mansion. You know, they just treat them like these, like, oh like what is it that they want like we need to figure it out like sort of what you were Wait, saying about the treating fashion them, like spread. little little Sorry. babies Sorry. um and the you fashion what...
1: spread that you saw this week just to throw that in there you guys oh, was saw there a that fashion with... spread oh yeah kirsten cinema's fashion yeah i mean they just treat
3: them oh, like they're just like really mysterious and interesting and it's like this isn't interesting
8: it's just corruption yeah, it's not you know it's you like it's not mysterious she runs from people constantly and goes to Europe to raise money. There's nothing that. <laughs> so, She's- yeah. And it, it.
3: so that, that's a choice by the media to sort of frame it that way. The other thing I'll say though, is that, you know, the media, we have to keep in mind that the media it's comprised of individuals. And I think one thing that um, really plays into coverage more than we acknowledge is that um, is just this sort of hegemonic social circle of people in the media. So that like, sometimes it feels like not something's not getting covered at all. And then all of a sudden it hits this tipping point and everyone's covering it. And it, it's because like, there are just these like trends in coverage, you know? So like, if everyone else starts covering something, people will cover it. So like, I, I think there's just a lot, there's just this really, really toxic groupthink in a lot of these media outlets that, you know, not all of it, it's it's obviously a corrupt system and it's obviously, um, you know, people who are sort of willing to swallow the corporate bullshit that sort of rise up through the ranks, but not all of it is just someone coming in with the bag of cash and being like, say this about climate change. It's really more or less like, like uh, ecosystem wide attitude. So I think like seeing a little bit more coverage of climate change is really just people in these circles, finally starting to feel some sort of effect on themselves. Like it's finally affecting, you know, even wealthy people um are like oh like is this bad i feel like this is bad i mean a great example is um the whole royal family in england you know all queen elizabeth prince william and prince harry all in the last month have come out like swinging all of a sudden on on climate change being like this is you know this is awful this is so bad like we need to punish these people and it's like well where you know where the hell have you been i think it's it's like Essentially, the ultra rich are suddenly starting to catch up. That this is something that could affect them in some way, and that's starting to filter down into the sort of like professional, uh, servile upper middle classes. Of like, oh yeah, like should we talk about this? Should we report about this? So, I mean, it's a it's a corrupt system, but it's also a sort of professionally ignorant system.
8: I think also they love to you know they love to be hey they're reporting for one another right so all we hear is numbers yeah. right we hear right. all we just like what's in the what's in the bill like they and they would say oh look Democrats haven't been able to message it well it's because it's the media's job to message it like it's the media's right. job to say what's in it they're supposed to be reporting but they're just trying to get scoops for un, for for each other on Twitter about numbers.
1: Let's actually right. um, play a clip because there's a clip that relates to that on CNN uh, where Bernie Sanders was doing that um, calling out the media for not. Uh, reporting on the infrastructure bill and CNN don't like it. They don't like when when they get called out because they the media and they know better. (laughs)
6: Sanders put out a statement this weekend blaming the media as the main reason for why Americans don't know what's in the Build Back Better plan. He wrote quote, at the top of the list is the reality that the mainstream media has done an exceptionally poor job in covering what actually is in the legislation. There have been endless stories about the politics of passing Build Back Better, the role of the president, the conflicts in the House and Senate the opposition of two senators, the size of the bill, and very limited coverage as to what the provisions of the bill are and the crises for working people that they address. Let's take a look at what all he is saying here, because while the media should always be striving to do a better job, it's just not true that the media hasn't covered what is in the bill and doesn't continue to do so. Media outlet after media outlet has covered this. And it's very easy to find online if you want to know about it. And on television, I mean, just looking at CNN, segment after segment about what is in the bill. In his statement, Sanders refers to how popular the policy provisions in the legislation are when Americans are polled about them. So that's what Democrats obviously should be selling. But one of Sanders' former colleagues, Al Franken, says Democrats could be doing a better job of that.
7: There is so much in this package that... And what I don't like is when we refer to it as the reconciliation package instead of the elements of it, because the elements are so popular.
1: So I have to, I'm going to, you're going to hate me. You're going to hate me when I say this. I think Bernie Sanders is, his strategy is the worst strategy you could possibly, like that's not the strategy. It's not the strategy. Because guess what? We know the media world. You're a senator. You ran for president twice. It's about how you break through the media, which he's very good at doing, by the way. And maybe he's just planting the seeds so that they reacted and they defended themselves. And when you're defending, you're losing, la, la, la. But the reality here is it is the Democrats' fault for not being able to message this. They're not on the same page. They don't have proper talking points. They're not talking about the human elements. They're not staging uh, rallies. I mean, the media will cover the rallies if if Joe Biden is in West Virginia talking to West Virginians. And that's what Donald Trump knew so well so well i, I will heard. say there have
8: been protests at different uh members of congress offices which had it been like the tea party those would have been covered uh, we covered the more perfect union but they have not been even mentioned at all in media right. so i think it's probably a mix of both i think part of the problem is that democrats did message this thing all year and now they're gonna uh, not do the things they messaged right like now we're saying right. like, uh commission co- tuition free community college is out of the picture now well i mean they've been talking about that for literally like 10 months now so i think part of the problem is that now they're not messaging it because they're going to kill everything in it. So right. they're going to they're going to bring people. Hey, here's like a quarter of a loaf of the big loaf of bread. We promise you, the,
1: mm-hmm. the quarter loaf of that roll that you got already. Um, yeah. No, but I'm I'm not saying that the media is not at fault. They're always at fault. It's just mm-hmm. if you're just waking up to this now, <laughs> like, and this is your excuse. I'm pretty see, I'm sorry, Bernie. Like you are, he's allergic to politics. Play politics. Our lives are on the line here. I'm just frustrated with everybody at this point. And love you, Bernie. But like, you know. Joe Biden just do it <laughs> Why are you so afraid of just Criticizing Joe Biden <laughs> Sorry Julia
3: go ahead um, Well I think I mean I'm always Going to defend Bernie probably because I just love Bernie but um, I know That his office is doing like Uh, I saw Jayapal and him and some other people were doing a like what's in the damn bill event and they've been doing some of these to like explain to their audiences that kind of stuff um and that is the kind of stuff that like it really doesn't get covered I mean when I was working for Bernie like obviously it was just this ongoing conversation of how many massive rallies we had that never got covered and then you know occasionally they like would do a piece that's like oh he's having like these big rallies but it was just it was as much as possible, it was really buried. Um, and then it it sort of became this thing sort of like with um, Standing Rock, where it was like it was so reported on social media that it was almost like too embarrassing to not report on it. So that was really my feeling on, on how that stuff comes up. I actually think um, it's a bit canny, actually, to insult them directly, because as you said, like they did have to talk about it. Like they got forced to talk about it basically by him um, talking shit on them. And, um, you know, I mean, I think, is that I think you're, I votes? think you're, I mean, I, I mean, think you're right that he is allergic I- to certain aspects of politics, which is also like a big part of his appeal to a lot of people sure. is that like, they just hate politics. And so they can relate to being the guy that's like in their gloves and their like stupid coat being like, I'm bored and I don't want to be here at inauguration, you know, like everyone related to that image. Cause like, you know, that's fucking boring. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: I mean, if it, it's not so much like, okay, they're doing things for their audience, and obviously Jayapal and, and Bernie have very large audiences, but Napoleon, if they went to West Virginia, if there was, like, a gang of eight senators or uh, and, like, every progressive organization decided to do a massive rally in West Virginia— right now, not a month ago, not four months ago, not when they're trying to educate people in the bill, but literally to call out this guy who's holding up government and making poor people suffer in his own state. If that happened right now, I would guess the media would cover it.
0: Yeah. I think so. Like so. That idea. I, I think it's not Let's too far-fetched to do. And West Virginia is not that <laughs> far-fetched right that now. Off <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 I would be, I, I think it would be a great thing. It's just, I, I, I keep seeing the way media is covering stuff now, it's like it's almost they, they cover politics the same way they cover sports or things like yeah. that. It's like it everything feels like WWF, like, like ref, wrestling right now. And it's, I, I think it's a self, you know, it, it's like we're going down a spiral because it's not educating the people the way they're supposed to be educated on things. And I guess that's where Bernie's frustration comes from, because it's like people don't actually know what this is about. They just hear a number. They hear a name. It's like it's not really connecting, and uh, wow. like I said, I, I, they, they, we need some some strong leadership and somebody to really step to the plate and, and and really champion this. And I'm not saying that they're not doing work behind, but obviously it's not cutting through. And the media, it's it's going to be very hard with this this type of media landscape to get anything serious communicated to people. I, in my opinion,
8: you know, if, if Bernie if Bernie went to West Virginia and held a rally the coverage would be mansions angry and a personal, uh, you know, a personal battle like Napoleon said, it'd be a one-on-one who said what about each other and what will this, what will this do to politics? It wouldn't be about what Bernie said at the rally. It wouldn't be about how how West Virginia was 46th in, you know, uh, in what's called income and how it was like 50th in terms of health or, you know, numbers like that. And how, you know, childcare would allow people to actually get higher wages and go to work and how, you know, they all these union workers who, who were used to working coal can now actually work in clean energy plants. It wouldn't be about that. It would be about, well, I mean, anonymous sources tell us that Joe Manchin was real mad. He threw a big fit on his houseboat yacht. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it'd be right. about.
1: Well, that's why it can't just be Bernie. That's what I'm trying to say. Is it can't just be Bernie. It can't just be AOC because it, it's gonna, that's what the narrative is going to be. It's got to right. be the folks behind the scenes who who probably want some attention too. You know, I think a lot of the senators are a little angry that like Bernie gets all the the love when they're. You know, some of them are doing good work, um, sometimes, <laughs> not all the time. And, and I mean, there, there are a lot of people, I think, that are frustrated, well, well beyond the Progressive Caucus, as we know in the numbers, that are frustrated by what he's doing. Send um, John Tester there. Yes, yeah, <laughs> send John <laughs> Tester. <laughs> um, no, but, I mean, I, I, this this reminds me of of, of when uh, we were trying to pass, you know, Obamacare. And what did Obama do? And Obama's, like, not somebody – who was a great organizer. I hate to break it to everybody. Um, he, I don't know if you remember, but he basically like eliminated the Democratic National Committee. <laughs> he was like, love that you have offices all over the country where you could spread the message, recruit candidates, talk about progressive policies and help me pass this bill. But I'm just going to cut your entire budget and give it to my, um, my, my media consultant.
3: Yeah, to be That's- fair, I think that was probably motivated by their, um, you know, in the tankness for the Clintons. I think he was basically, it was... <laughs> Yeah. Revenge.
8: Yeah, Maybe. unfortunately, cutting cutting the budget of every single state party uh, didn't do much to hurt the Clinton types. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's fair.
6: Exactly. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I, I think saying. there was,
3: I think there was no love loss between the yeah. uh, Democratic
1: Party structures and Obama when he came in. Is my yeah. feeling. Yeah. Well. Okay. So. So with that being said, he did. Uh, they did organize these cross country trips, held rallies, did events. This is some of the same folks are in the administration now who were in charge of that. I really just think this is all, I mean, I don't, I think this is the plan all along. Like, it's not like they don't know the tricks. They don't have the money. They they know how to
0: campaign for things when they want to. I mean, I, I, basically, if I understand right, you're saying he, he, Biden should make a, a like a show out of it. I mean, since everything is is reality TV anyways, and like you said, that's what Trump was good at. You know, galvanizing the crowds, doing these big grandiose rallies. I mean, maybe he could tap into that. And like you said, make a whole campaign about, we need to get this bill. These, this is what's in it. These are, these are who, who are the, these are the people obstructing the bill. Make sure you call them, make sure you hold them accountable. And he and should be tweeting ways, at
3: so. mansion that he's a loser. That's what he should be doing. <laughs> he should do the Trump playbook I mean, say cinema, huge point- loser. <laughs> Nobody <S laughs> likes her horrible, horrible clothes or something. <laughs> that would go very viral.
0: <laughs> hey, we're Last laughing, night. but I actually think that it, it probably would be more effective than, than was I going agree,
1: on. honestly. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I just want one of the staffers long. to leak, like you know that there's some behind the scenes conversations that are not going well right now. I would love for like just one good staffer who's probably watching our show, just just mm-hmm. send it over. Uh, you know, we don't know whose office, but I'd love one senator to be caught on camera going, that effing asshole. <laughs> just do it.
8: I want someone to break into one of those, uh, one of cinema's fundraisers with all the corporate fundraisers and record that. What does yeah. she tell them?
1: Wait, I'm, I'm really confused because I feel Jordan, you're, you're how are, how is she fundraising in Europe? Like um, with Americans? With Americans? Expats, I assume. Yeah. Expats. yeah. There's okay. so many rich expats. Yeah. She's like, this is the time to go on my next version it's, of a wine tour.
8: You know, she's either being, I don't think she's dense. She's a very smart person as much as I dis- just dense, yeah. I to dislike her. Um, I think it's like a, in her mind, it's, she's either like this, I'm going to show I'm independent by doing this. Or she's like, fuck you guys. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to raise my money. I'm going to become a lobbyist and I'm going to use my, my campaign committee to just a out of favors. Yeah. I think she's just like, fuck it.
1: I don't, listen, I don't think she needs to do this to be a lobbyist. She could have done that from Congress. She could have done that when she was in the House of Reps. But I think like, it
8: helps her ego. She's a, you know, I think, I think that's what it is. It's the same reason she, you know, re- wears wild patterns and funny wigs, you know? Uh, That's her hair, by the way. She's
1: the unshakable champion of the rich. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on that note, before we wrap, I I do want to talk about the ad campaigns that are happening in Arizona because um, my parents are out in Arizona and they were telling me that there was this one, I wish we had this ad. Maybe we can find it afterwards and play it. Um, There's an ad that's very confusing. Very confusing because, just a quiz here. How many Democratic senators are there in Arizona right now? Anybody know the answer to this? I think there's two. Two, two, interesting. Yeah, two Democrats, two Democrats elected on the Democratic line. Okay. Well, the ad is um, blasting Mark Kelly and praising Kirsten Cinema and saying, "Mark Kelly, why aren't you voting with Kirsten Cinema for jobs and expanded Medicare?" It is gobbledygook. Like it makes no sense. You're like, "Wait, what? What?" There...? And then you're like, "Wait, a conservative is this is an ad for Kirsten Cinema? Like she's running against Mark Kelly?" And Kelly is not supporting a bill that is not actually the bill that anybody it's it's not an actual bill. It is so confusing. Um what's going on right now? I mean, and it's not obviously it's not affecting her. She's she's dropping in 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 support in Arizona. Right. What is the strategy? Come on, you guys, you're masterminds of politics. <laughs> yeah,
8: you know, the the recall against her. We, we did a story on this, the not the recall, the the, the uh, what you call it primary effort. It is not just <laughs> progressive Democrats. It's not just the angry, yeah. angry left. 80% of the uh, state Democratic Party voted in favor of it. And they said to me, or I said to us, you know, we did it through the Democratic Party because we wanted to be clear that it's not just, you know, the progressives. It's not yeah. just people on the left. It's very much people who are, you know, across the board of the Democratic Party and I think she had like 20 something people, percent of people wanted to like her to run for reelection. I think it's she's really, really cratering. And maybe she thinks that if I run for uh, in the primary, independents can vote in the primary in yeah. Arizona, but they're also going to have a Republican to vote for, you know, in the Repu- Republican primary. And so if she thinks she's going to be saved by half of the independents who decide to vote in the Democratic primary, you know, a lot of independents don't vote in primaries. Uh, if she thinks And she they have to choose that, one.
1: They can't yeah, choose both. Exactly. Right.
8: Right. And, and she's so,
1: tanking with independence too, by the way.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine her doing this thinking it's good policy. to this point. And, you know, I can imagine her like trying to stand up for the filibuster and being, you know, trying to be a moderating voice, but not talking to people, you know, yeah. not talking to people who are coming, not to your fundraisers, coming to your school, coming everywhere. You know, it was funny to see the media freak out about her being pissed, her people talking to her when she was in the bathroom. like everyone in Arizona was like, no, you should talk to people. Like her her approval rating went further down after that.
3: Yeah. That's another one of those like disconnect between media and reality things where there are just like separate um, etiquette rules for like elites versus everybody else. So like nobody would bat an eye that anyone, you know, did that to someone who wasn't a politician. But like, there, it, it's just sort of like, the same way that someone can be like, Oh, you know what? It's really bad. We killed a million people in Iraq, but also I'm really sad that all of these politicians that voted for it, like died, you know, it's like, these are like not equivalent things. Like one, one, like really important architect of the Iraq war is still worth more than a million Iraqi lives. Like it's just the the calculus there. So like just the fact of like normal, not important people daring to talk to an important person like that is just such a violation of etiquette that just calls into question this entire like very i mean very hierarchical we like to pretend we're this sort of like um you know classless society or that we're not as like as stratified class-wise as a lot of places but like it, it's a pretty stratified class system well,
8: I think, it's the same reason why people well, I was gonna say it's the same reason why people don't say you know when bob menendez uh he's not going to He's not going to support prescription drug pricing reform. He's like the number one uh, recipient of drug money uh, uh, in the Senate. You know, he's from New Jersey. That's where a lot of them are based. He received, there's there's a story in Stat News, I think in May, just saying that, Wow, and off your election—not uh, during his election season—he's uh, getting a lot of money from pharmaceutical companies. But this is deference to elected officials, the deference to a Joe Manchin, and uh, we, he doesn't want to talk about his financials. He said that I don't want to talk right. about my personal business. And they're like, well, I guess we can't do it. Like they right. will not ever call anyone corrupt. They will not ever right. just say the obvious because, like Julia said, there is a deference to them that does not—the uh, rules do not apply to them.
1: Well, also the companies that they're working for are simultaneously lining the pockets of many of these politicians. I mean,
3: if you're gonna, right? But able- I, I it's think something. it's I think it's like deeper than that. You know what I mean? Like I think that's correct, and I also think it's like in the blood, like in the well, sense it's, of it's like a, it's like it's the like system the, breeds the, it. Oh, right the the sort of like hegemonic culture of like treating people this way. It's like. You don't have to be reminded. You don't have to be rewarded. You don't have to be punished. Like it's just your natural inclination not to challenge these people because you know the same way that peasants aren't supposed to challenge kings. Like that's this. It's the same mm-hmm. thing that people like were. It's we're bred to feel this way. Like we're raised to feel this way. That we cannot talk to these people. We they, we should not think that they're we're equal to them. It's also
8: an element of, like as, uh, access journalism as well, right? You have to go to Congress. Like they have to talk to you. You have to be in the hallway. they have to be willing to talk to you they've got to know your name you know like their aides have to be willing to uh, return your phone calls so pr- part of it's practical because you know they don't want to just be trashing everyone and calling them a liar constantly but mm-hmm. yeah. at the same time if you're just carrying their water then what's the point of talking to them?
1: It, the, the system breeds it and it's like it's it's not i mean i just remember this when i was running for office uh during my second debate not my first debate this is important because the f- first one we we won we were like city and state declared that we were the winner and you know, we got, like, zero Pinocchios while everybody else did. So the second one, um, I was asked a question from a political reporter who was simultaneously writing a hit piece on me at the same time. Real ethical, right? Uh, in which we were, like, our lawyers were, like, fighting with each other. at this. Yeah, this was all happening behind the scenes. So she, she asked this question about um, testing in New York City, which just – Bill de Blasio just like came out in this on the same side as I was. So I fact checked her. And I said, actually, and I cited, I literally cited the the education expert, who's very renowned. So this is actually the case. And then she goes, No, it's not. And then I said, Well, I'm, I, I beg to differ. But like, I think every teacher, the teachers unions of New York would also beg to differ. That's, that's not the case. and That's not correct. She's no, it's not okay. Get to the second question, and I push back against something else. Another question is that I just don't accept this fundamental question. I think it's 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 flawed. It's two different groups against each other, whatever. And then the reporter at the time goes, "You have interrupted more than anybody else. If you interrupt one more time, we're shutting your mic down." And I thought, I was so upset about this afterwards. Because first off, I hadn't interrupted more than anybody else. And I walked up to him, Errol Lewis, afterwards, and I said, Errol, you know, I've known you for 10 years. Uh, Why would you do that? That was because you fucking interrupted more than anybody else. Fuck you. Literally said that to my face. And I'm like, what on earth happened here? I don't know what happened. I watched the episode after the debate, I watched the coverage. And the guy who works for the company that was airing at New York One said, the fact that she walked into the house and the first thing she said when she got up there—by the way, all the other politicians said the same thing—was, "I stand with the workers striking right now on the company." Because I was like, "Do I go on a New York One? Do I not?" The workers are striking right now, and so I started off with that. They said she walked into the house and she shit in the house that we invited her to. So that set the tone. I mean, I now know that's what happened. Was that like they were instructed to like right. you know, not speak up? But. It was such an indication to me, like, of yes, it is. Yes, there is like this culture, but it is also extremely intentional and systematic. Like they have meetings beforehand and say that person spoke way too much last time. We can't have them talk enough. Like she's talking too much about workers' rights and you know racism, et cetera. And and now like through much more conversation, because I talked to a producer behind the scenes, that's exactly what happened. And you're not. I mean, you can't. Like, Kirsten Cinema gets a certain type of treatment for a reason, and Vogue spreads in the middle of this crisis, and Bernie Sanders is the crazy guy. That's intentional. That's not just culture. I mean, it spills into culture, but but. Um, yeah, I agree. I think, but I think both can be
3: true. I think it's um, this sort of self fulfilling prophecy of like these people hire people that agree with them, and then they don't need reinforcement to act on their beliefs. I think like one of the most harmful ideas in. Um, modern media is this idea of objectivity, which, you know, doesn't exist. Like there's really no such thing as objectivity. Everybody has an opinion. So, um, and you know, essentially that idea was introduced into modern media as basically like a sales gimmick of like, you know, we're, we're actually going to report, we're not going to have an opinion. We're going to report both sides. But so what it really leads to is people implying their opinion and, and, um, presenting their opinion through their reporting, but without like openly saying it. And it's almost like, it's just more, it's damaging because like the same way that, you know, you can build up this massive case for the Iraq war. If you get enough people on board believing the same thing and you bill it as objectivity, then the public swallows that as something that's just objectively true um, you know, I think in that case that you're talking about as, as in a lot of cases, it's like the people that don't like Bernie, um, don't like what he has to say are responsible for misreporting when he says, I mean, they personally don't like him right. and, and they're in that position because they agree with their bosses, but they personally feel have feelings about him and they personally dislike him. So um, but the companies you know, are also not hiring,
1: they're not hiring people who have a difference of opinion.
3: Totally. So yes. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying is that it, it can be, it can be both. It's, I it's, it's also, absolutely from the top down. And at the same time, like the people they bring in, they, in their hearts, hate Bernie Sanders. I mean, look at what's <laughs> happening
8: with like,
1: Politico's buyout. out. You're a reporter
8: now? until you get to that point where you're like a national correspondent. It's yeah. really expensive to live in these cities. And unless you've got like people supporting you you're not going to really make it from intern up to like White House correspondent uh, unless yes. you are, you know, cause it just, it's just impossible to, most of, they'll go to social media marketing because they don't have the money, you know, they, they can't uh, not make money. I think there's there's also an element of reporters feeling like they are on the same level as journalists, you know, in the same way that like, Journal the uh, same level as politicians. The same way that journalists feel like, oh yeah, I'm kind of on the same level as an uh, Elon Musk or a uh, Jeff Bezos. We hang mm-hmm. out at, we go to the same press conferences. We're in that same class of people because they talk to us. It's like when I watched in entertainment, all the reporters felt like, oh yeah, like I, I get to go on the red carpet with the celebrities. I'm not one of those fans, but they don't care about them. They don't throw them under the bus any any moment. But you know, there's just like this feeling of class um, solidarity. That but they're not in the same class, and right. so that I think is very foolish. And then also, you know, this idea that they. Yeah, it's the, it's a class solidarity thing, and it's just like they want to be savvy, they want to be able to. You always see things like coded as analysis. They want to be seen as like the smart ones, and so like a left is saying something that's that's never going to happen. You know, even if it's like the best policy, even if it's the best idea, even if it's popular, you know, it's it's not going to happen in Washington. So they just write it off. You know, all the stories about how you know the Freedom to Vote, Vote Act or whatever they call it, the Joe Manchin Memorial Voting Rights Act, it's not going to pass with the filibuster. Like they just put that in the headline, and yes, but like that can change if there's public. Pressure. You know, that, that's not inevitable, but because they want to be sad, because they want to, you know, have their analysis, because they want to seem like they know what they're talking about, um, that winds up just taking pressure off of these right wing lawmakers, you know, it just gives them permission to go ahead and, you know, let the filibuster happen. Well, it's inevitability. Instead of Democrats allow Republicans to block voting rights. It, it's easier, you could say just that same way, exact same yep. thing, without just giving permission to right wing ideologues.
1: Um. Before we go to final thoughts, I was at this climate conference last week. And Jordan, I know you know know about this. We covered it. Uh, There were some activists that were protesting the fact that the Shell CEO was speaking. Uh, They actually protested on stage. And then uh, there were also protesters, including myself, that pushed back against an Amazon um, executive getting an entire lunch uh, talking about his greenwashing campaign. And when people got up, some of the folks got up. um, Some of the people in the audience who were supposedly in the climate movement, um, older, white. Booed and said, Sit down, you're being disrespectful to the person, just simply asking a question, frankly, to the shells, to the um, uh, Amazon executives' face. And it just felt so gross to me. And exactly what you're talking about is like they've become numb to just, it was a very basic question, like, you know, when are you actually going to hit these goals that you've promised to hit? It was a pretty light question. but it's like this, it's this group think. It's like they're at a conference, you know, you have to be respectful of the CEO who paid for our lunch. Like, don't push back too hard. And that's I to me it's just it's permeated in in so many different ways. They go to these conferences, they go to these events, and and now because it's about climate, they have to actually invite activists, because it's ridiculous not to. <laughs> um and, and it 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 it's disrupting everything. And I
0: don't know.
1: Uh Napoleon, final thoughts.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um it's, it's a click thing, you know, like what you said to in the media or, or like uh, people think they, they're part of social circles and they might not be as wealthy as the people that they represent. or it, But they, they do have a lot of social capital that a lot of people don't have because they have access to these circles. They also have cultural capital. They probably went to the same schools and everything like that. And everything is filtered through these these different channels. And uh, it, it always ends up benefiting the status quo and the system and the establishment. And um like it, it would seem logical that if people who were stand to benefit from sh- actual change would be more like um uh, infiltrate these 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 circles, it will work. But you don't know what happens in between time when 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 they do step over over the line and get get into these um these structures. But this, the system is not working and I and I and I think it's broken and it, and it, it it's um i mean it, it's to everybody's detriment at the end of the day so i, I there's going to need some sort of leadership to get us out of here
1: Napoleon, julia jordan until next time come up with some ideas maybe we'll we'll have unique ways of protesting and disrupting the system that's your homework. Have a nice day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. And thanks, everybody watching. Uh, make sure to stay in solidarity and see us on Friday for Fun Friday this week. Uh, we have a great show on Friday. Uh, and if you're not already, join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the show You can get swag. We've got bags. We've got stickers. We've got, uh, what else do we have? Bags, stickers, and mugs. That's what we have. I just realized I had a dream last night that I was promoing our Patreon. And in my dream, I was promoting hats. That did not happen in real life. That was something that was in my head, in my dream where like, you know, you're living this a little bit too much when you're promoting a product that you don't even have in your dream. So everyone loves to hear about dreams. All right, everybody stay in solidarity. We will see you on Friday.
0: Momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and it's melted by. We live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues, continues. The No Meeky Show.